Hello, you've tuned in to the Death Dialogues Project podcast. My name is Becky Odd Jennison, and I'm your host. Why death? Death is the part of our lives we are so very certain about, yet we fear the most. Hiding deep within anxiety, which is a current epidemic, lies the fear of death, ours or a loved one's. But what if I told you that people who embrace death and talk about it openly have a more full-spectrum life experience? We know it isn't your fault. We've been programmed to stuff our conversations and feelings surrounding end of life. By listening to other stories, you get invaluable practice. Our listeners feel more informed about what to do when they find themselves negotiating that inevitable terrain. Most of all, our listeners feel a personal expansion after sitting with someone's tender and fascinating story. That's why we say listening will make you a better human. Promise. Thanks for being here. I just love how things unfold with this project and with this work. Right now, I'm sitting on the edge of a beautiful bay overlooking the ocean. My own, our own book released two days ago, Death and Its Terrible, Horrible, No Good, Very Beautiful Lessons. And you can find that anywhere where books are sold. And I'm in New Zealand, of course, looking forward to getting back to the States in the not-too-distant future to connect with children and grandchildren I've not met yet. And having a lot of contemplation about the beauty that New Zealand has brought me and the learning and ways to look at death differently And on today's podcast, we listen to Margaret's conversation that I find a simply beautiful reframing of death. You are going to hear death spoken about in a way that you don't often hear humans talking about death. And then these some of these recordings were recorded quite a while ago and i'd actually forgotten about her beautiful book that i read and that she talks about here and how it came to be and it's based on story and i just feel there's a full circle process going on here new zealand death this book meeting these beautiful people that I've met along the way through this project, people that are um, in the book, in our book. Uh, Yeah, I'm just a little blown away right now sharing this with you. So I cannot wait for you to hear this episode. Let us know what you think. Um, Oh, Margaret's words and her attitude, I just find refreshing. One quote, I just wrote down, and she does a reading at the end, how sad she thinks it is that people miss their own death because they are struggling so hard to keep living. I'll leave with you with that. And I thank you so much for being here.
supporting this project. Hello, Margaret. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me, Becky. It's, it's a delight. Oh, it is a delight for me as well. I'm so looking forward to being able to share some of your stories and your work. But first of all, kind of the way we roll around here is it would be beautiful if you tell people where you're at in the world and then talk to us about your personal experiencing experiences surrounding death that um, informed you maybe before you got into your work. And then let's just talk from there if that's okay with you. Sure. Thank you. So I'm in New Zealand. Um, I'm in Wellington at uh, the bottom of the North Island. Yes. And yeah, my experience is probably somewhat different from some of the people you've you've had on your podcasts. Um As I was growing up, I noticed that I was a bit odd because I didn't seem to be afraid of death. I just assumed at first that's how it was for everybody and then realised it wasn't. Um, and then my my first sort of major experience, um, personal experience of death, was when my parents were killed in a motor accident so I was 26, um, had a child going on three, my, my elder daughter Nikki and, and a new baby, um, Jamie. And yeah, a policeman came to the door and he was, I, I heard it was, it was in the evening and my husband went to the door I heard him say grandparents, and I thought, oh, I wonder if my grandparents have died. And then I that sort of took me to the door too. And then I realised he was talking about the child's grandparents, and the child was our daughter, Nikki, who was fine. She'd... Um, she was in hospital, but mostly just for observation. And my parents had been bringing her home. She'd had a wee holiday with, with them, um, quite a long way from where we lived. And they were bringing her home via my younger sister's place. They were going to stay there for the night. There was something about the mention of grandparents that gave me a sort of a moment to be with death before I had to sort of take in that actually it was my parents. Mm. Yeah. But then there was the fact that, that, our, that our Nikki was safe. And... Looking back on that, when I first I'll say, right from the beginning, it was like there was two, there were two elements. There was grief, 
but there was also a sort of holding um a i can only describe it as the peace that passes understanding which i'd sort mm-hmm. of heard of in church but didn't know what it meant because this really did pass understanding you know it was very odd to feel a peacefulness a somehow a kind of inner sense that life was okay um in the face of the very sudden death of my parents. And, you know, I've sometimes wondered whether one of the elements of that was that Nikki was safe, but it felt bigger than that. And then I looked back and realised this long, complicated story that had kept Nikki safe. And... Yeah, I will I will tell that. So she was nearly going on three. I'd been doing the odd bit of sewing to um to you know, clothes to put in her suitcase. My husband and I were taking her to the airport to meet up with his parents who were going to this to the city close to where my parents lived. So they were taking her in the plane. And because we almost never went into the city, we had various things to take, um, as well as the suitcase and, you know, the new baby and picnic lunch and what have you. Um, unusually, I said to my husband, um, the suitcase is, is in the spare room. And we got halfway down the motorway and realised that we didn't have the suitcase. So we spun around, came back, zoomed out to the airport. This was before the days of mobile phones and things, so there was no way of letting anybody know. So on the on the way in the car, I was filling out this little questionnaire that my mother had sent so sweetly. We used to write real letters to each other. And it had little things like, does she still have an afternoon sleep? Yes, does she... Have a have a nappy or just at sleep time, and when does she have does she have a bottle or you know just like really basic questions. The last question was, um, we've hired a car seat for her that hooks on the front, hooks over the front seat. Again, you know these were different days. <laughs> um, right. Yeah. Should she be in that all the time or? only if there's not somebody else in the car to keep an eye on her. And I'd put a big ring around all the time. Now, my mother didn't get that because it was a last-minute thing that I was filling filling in, and I popped it with Nikki's Play-Doh, which was her favourite thing, Um, just sort of stuffed it into the corner of um, my husband's mother's shoulder bag as we sort of threw Nikki into her arms and they went onto the plane and uh, my mother-in-law was a bit deaf and in any case there was a lot happening she didn't get to give that note to my mother my mother being who she was just boxed on and you know made the best decisions she could but that meant Nikki was not in the car seat and there's absolutely no way she would have survived had she been in the car seat Oh, my goodness. Yeah. 
So she was on the back seat of the car, clearly with mum alongside her, because mum was in the back seat too, keeping an eye on her, and dad was in the driver's seat. And it would seem my, my dad probably went to sleep at the wheel and collided with the bus. Mm. So, yeah, an exquisite sort of, oh, just a whole series of events that that led to Nikki being safe was was mm. very profound, I guess. Yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm. I can feel that. Mm. Mm. So, just have to ask: Was Nikki very badly injured, or no? How did she feel? No, she was probably not knocked unconscious. She has a tiny scar on her head. She was 46 yesterday. <laughs> um, mm. She's in fine fettle. Um, I, she spoke a bit about it um, a bit later. Um, I can remember sitting on the doorstep in the sun with her one morning having some morning tea when she was three and she she finally spoke a bit about the the hospital um and she was only there you know just overnight we picked her up the next day wow you know she's i mean i it, i just had to believe that it was my parents time to go and not hers i mean it was just just seemed so clear mm. yeah and I mean, I know that's challenging, the idea of, you know, it's somebody's time to go. But it's um, for me, it's like we have our soul's journey and we decide these things, the, the essence of our lives ahead of time before we before we incarnate. Um, and, and what emerged for me too out of my parents' death, I won't go into that, but, the, you know, I mean, the well, in some ways this work, the work that I do, emerge from that but other other things as well earlier on and I know that that sense of deep peace around their death um, is is kind of fundamental to my to my you know working with death later in life can I ask how long it took for that deep peace to show itself oh it was immediate it was immediate wow yeah well that's quite the miracle Mm. Mm. and then I mean sometimes I think the word grief is not appropriate to use because everybody looks at that as dark and you know full of torturing anguish but I look at the word more as the adjustment, you know, it's mm. a quick word for yeah. that adjustment of a different life. So, um, so what did that process look like for you? That, that was interesting. Um, there was a handful of people who couldn't get, their heads around and understandably how kind of okay I was and thought uh, it was all just buried 
and I knew that's not what was going on, but, you know, I just had to be with, you know, with, with who I was. Um, but then parallel to that sort of deep underlying peace or okayness, there were things like, um, you know, I had to drag myself to to cook the, cook the dinner every night, for instance, the, things like that, the kind of mundane mm-hmm. chores were hard going. Um, my tears were always when I was in the garden. They, I just often cried when I was in the garden or when, or when I was in the bath. They, were, they seemed to be my, my teary times. And then after about six months, I remember one day almost looking back over my shoulder and thinking, oh, that sort of peace seems to be finished. Um, so I guess by then there was, yeah, it was all more more integrated. So you see that, so when you say the peace was finished, you don't imply, so then the opposite of that came to you at that moment. It was, you're saying more as that process, that aftermath. Oh, yes. And I didn't, I, okay. I spelt that piece differently, but you couldn't see it in my mind. <laughs> that, yes. yeah, that, thank you for taking that up. I meant the P-I-E-C-E. So that, that phase. Oh, oh okay. <laughs> <laughs> so P-E-A-C-E didn't go away. It's, it's like it's, Gotcha. Yeah, I guess it's kind of still remained. Um, yeah. I want to just um, comment, I think, uh, that you've pointed out beautifully just by this telling that even with all that peace, there probably the tears I'm imagining, you can tell us where they came from, but, but even when we have that, whatever it is, a deep belief system or just that knowing that inner peace, it doesn't always mean that we don't miss our love's yeah, feet absolutely. on the planet. Yeah, okay. absolutely. I, yeah, and I guess my experience tells me that those things can sit absolutely just alongside each other. Mm, beautiful. Yeah. Mm. And that, you know. So what, we can what, have great peace about mm-hmm. someone's death and we can miss them yeah, tremendously. Absolutely. That's what you're saying. Yes. Mm. Yeah. Mm. Beautiful. And that particular phase, it was like it was like the, I don't know, maybe I could say that was sort of the worst of it or whatever. Um, it was like that particular phase was over. But I have met it. Yeah. I mean, this is a long time ago now, so I've still, you know, I still, I still meet the. Um, it's not so much the adjustment as the. I don't know, it's still, you know, very occasionally, but it's, it can still come up and, yeah, there's, there's tears there. Mm. How, has your, um, how has your daughter's life been affected by this? You know, I, assuming I she may or may not have memory, but is it, is it a part yeah. of her story as she walks mm. forward in her life? Not a lot. No, mm-hmm. I, I think the biggest piece was because she's a, a child who was always kind of quite um, sort of almost jolly and slightly silly and, yeah, so it, um, 
I think perhaps I didn't take in that it was affecting her further, you know, in layers further down. Um, and it was only last year that we actually um, – Well, we did a piece of work together. Let me say, I, d I did a piece of my own work and then we did a piece together um, in regard to what I might have missed in her, in her cues or in her kind of handling what had happened. Um, that, that had affected the relationship between us. Not in a big way, but, um, but I think it had. And so... <clears throat> Yeah, we've we've worked with that. Mm, beautiful. Yeah. Beyond that, I'd say no. She's just she's very much just got on with her life and um, enjoys her life. Mm. And then you were twenty six when that happened. And were there more personal deaths, or how did death? revisit your life and the work that you're doing yeah well then the next um I, I mean had a couple of um my grandmother died six weeks later my dad's mother and that was very much um you know she died of a broken heart I'm sure she'd been ready for death I remembered my dad saying over a couple of winters you know grand, grandma's ready to go um but then the, the next one that that really touched me was many years later. It was um, a man I refer to as Uncle Bob. He was my sort of, a slightly distant cousin. But um, um, I knew he wanted to stay at home to die. And I was really determined for that to happen. And I think it wasn't until a long time afterwards that I realised that part of my determination was that I wanted to be there for his death. I wanted to accompany him in a way that I was unable to with my parents. Um, so that was that was a very precious experience. He was ninety. He was he he was less determined to live and more just it was it was one's duty. I, I got to feel that he. He would spend three hours getting dressed and they were washed and shaved and dressed in the morning. Uh, he was, you know, had so little energy. Um, but that was just what you did. And you got down on the floor and you did your exercises. <laughs> he was delightful. Um, and I just, yeah, I was there as his companion and um, to cook his evening meal which got smaller and smaller and smaller and um, he slept more and more in the, you know, sitting in the sun uh, and it, he felt it felt like an old cat you know who finds a, a, a place to curl up and just no more eating and drinking yeah it felt it had that sort of quality about it mm -hmm. um, and one day he said to me, because I every so often I'd say, you know, oh, would would you rather just stay in bed, Uncle Bob? And, and he'd look at me like, what do you mean? <laughs> um, he found that very odd. 
um, one day he did stay in bed and he, yeah, the next day he just fought, um, yeah, fought until he was able to come and, you know, get dressed and sit in the lounge again. But then at the end of that day, he couldn't stand up. He couldn't, he couldn't take himself to his bed. Mm. And another of those magnificent timings, my son had never dropped in on me there, um, and he did. He turned up, and he's a big strapping lad, and he, he picked Uncle Bob up and carried him to his bed, and, and he, he, didn't, um, he didn't go any further than that. He stayed in his bed after that, and he, he mm. stopped eating, and I think we had the odd cup of tea. Um, yeah, and he would you like to share your poem? So, you, your oh, my poem your about book. Bob, yeah, season your book, and um, yes. I thought it was beautiful, yeah, okay. Just... So, why don't you briefly for our listeners tell them how you've structured your book, okay? So, as far as um, yeah, yeah. So my book is the, um, it's, it's called Soul Midwife's Journal, Stories of Honouring Death. And that really is the important piece. It's, it's stories that, that honour death, even though they're very, very different. Each story is very different. Um, so these are my experiences um, with people who've, who've let me in on their, their deaths in some measure or other. Some I've been with for a long time. Some it's only been a matter of some conversations I've had with them. And each story is followed by one or more poems, um, most of which I wrote at the time. They just the poem just kind of, um, or at least the beginnings or the essence of them would just bubble up because I was so moved by these experiences of being with people who are dying. And. Then the third element is I've asked some readers to, these were people I, I know, um, to read the stories and the poems and just re- make some reflection on what did they feel, what did they learn, what surprised them, what moved them, that sort of thing. And, and yeah, the, the reflections to me really kind of, add to the story because they draw out different people's um, understandings or responses. Mm. So should we have Uncle Bob, so, shall we? Yeah, so so this is after the the narrative you've written about the experience with Uncle Bob. That's yeah, right. Yeah. Yes. So companioning Uncle Bob. I gave myself the job, the privilege it turned out, of enabling my Uncle Bob to spend his last few months at home. Death was not new to me, but dying was. I was no nurse, just a woman thankful to this dear old man for giving me family when I needed it. He let me be his companion, but never his servant. Most offers of help refused. With a deep sense of duty, he would wash, shave and dress his 90-year-old body if it took him three hours to complete. When his afternoons napped in a sunny chair, he'd be cross if I didn't keep waking him. And any suggestion he might stay in his bathrobe, or maybe even in bed, was met with perplexed disbelief. 
when finally one day he did stay in bed, the day after he couldn't believe it, and battled fatigue to return to his normal regime. Come five o'clock, though, he wanted to go to his bed. But no matter how hard he tried, he could not will himself to stand up. To my relief, my strong son came visiting, scooped him up gently, and carried him off to his bed. And there he stayed. The next day, as we sat with our cuppers, he suddenly asked, would I fight on or give up? If I were in your shoes, I'd give up, I declared, quite sure of my answer after watching for weeks. But why, he asked. Because life is too much of a struggle, I said. It's true there's not much pleasure left, he said slowly. I enjoy my cup of tea. How would you give up, he then asked. I would just lie down and wait for death to come and take me away, I replied. Is it comfortable, he asked. You mean dying? Is dying comfortable? Oh, I have no doubt. In fact, I think it's much better than comfortable. I think it's like walking into the sunshine. There are things one says sometimes with complete conviction, which simply turn up to be said. From then on, my uncle was mostly asleep. Next day, I sat with him writing a letter. And although I looked and looked at his body in the bed, I could not see or feel my Uncle Bob. That afternoon, he took his last good breath and, as far as I can know, walked off into the sunshine. Mm -hmm. It's beautiful. Thank you for sharing. Uh, it was a very precious experience. Mm. Mm. And then I took his funeral. Um, the, the funeral director was going to lead a funeral service. It was, you know, we knew it would be only a tiny gathering of people. And, and I dared to say to his sister-in-law and his friend, um, could I do it? Because uh, I just, I, I had a really strong urge to to um, take his funeral. Um, so I did. And that was that was very special. It was like, like it wrapped up our time together. Oh, that's, that's just really special. Yes. Yeah. Mm. Mm. And then that, I guess that led me on to other funerals um, and, and other death experiences. The next story in the book is, very different um, and that's um, about a friend and work colleague and um, the, the challenges of, of her death um, and then I took her funeral as well which was a complex affair very very different from Uncle Bob's because it involved all the um, people from the community centre where we'd worked together um, and, the, and a very shocked family who didn't know that their mother was ill. Um, 
so yes that was a that was a big piece to hold not just the funeral service but beyond that it got very very complex and um, rather fraught yeah very sad yeah my next experience was very beautiful the very very um, a very very peaceful death I was living in the UK by this stage and my housemate said she was looking for people to be um, live-in carers with her um, her mum and dad in a city not far away, about an hour by train. And it was when she said that her mother is probably dying or sort of, you know, heading towards death. It was like, oh, yes, I'll do it. <laughs> um, so 18 months later, having really got to know these two, I, um, I just did, um, I think, alternative three-day weekends. That was my part in the, um, yeah, there was a, a cluster of sharers share, sharing the roles. Um, and I'd really come to love these these two people, Margaret and David. And then one day when I turned up for my shift, uh, just aware of a very, a very different Margaret, she'd, she was more agitated and she was so just sort of pulling back. Um, and then I ended up staying on as other carers came and went. Um, I stayed on for a fortnight to hold the sort of the soul midwife or death doula piece, um, the person who accompanies death. And in that particular situation, um, there were a lot of family dynamics, as can happen. You know, death really does bring emotions to the surface all around us. I'm sure your listeners will be very aware of that. Yes. And... Yeah, so with like being there in in amongst it, but one step removed from the actual emotion, I I was able to just make the, some little comments that that perhaps helped um, people to understand a bit better what was going on. Um, I also noticed I was was very much there strongly on Margaret's behalf as a person who had entered her, you know, the last phase of her dying journey. And for me, that was a lot about um, providing a lot of quiet and, you know, just not disturbing her too much. When people are that close to death, they're not wanting food or drink unless they ask for it, and seldom they do. Um, you know, we can we could swab her mouth and things to keep her lips moist, but they, yeah, there isn't a, a need or a desire usually for food and drink. Um, and washing too, you know, time came when I was like, we really don't need to be washing her anymore. <clears throat> um, so it's just to really 
provide more and more stillness and peace and to have that, you know, for me to carry that in myself as well. And, yeah, I mean, I wrote a whole spate of (laughs) poems about Margaret's death because there was just, um, I don't know, there just seemed so much to write about the... um, but the main sort of themes were this, just the slowness, the steadiness, the um, things getting quieter. And one of the most magnificent things for me was that it was a really deep snow. It was January in England and um, it closed all the side roads. There were, you know, people just weren't out and about and the, 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 Something about the um, anyone who's been in in snow will know that it kind of silences everything, mm-hmm. and so this kind of blanket of white plus the the slowing down of everything it just so beautifully reflected what was happening for Margaret. Um, and yes, she finally just slid away. She slid away on her own, which happens often. I know people can be very upset. They've been, you know, giving company and support to a loved one day in, day out, and then they pop out to the toilet or to have a coffee or something, and their loved one dies, and they feel this terrible remorse um, that they've done something wrong, Or they feel angry that their loved one, you know, didn't wait till they got back or things. But it's such a a solo journey, really, death. And so it's very, very common, actually, for people to to leave while there's no one around. Mm. Yes, I've experienced that. And we do hear about that very commonly. And... Mm. It can be so hard for people to let go and yes, even yeah. attempt to give that space or experiment with giving that space. Mm-hmm. But yeah. mm, well, I, you're describing. I just, uh, I just kind of was there, you know, envisioning the snow and the mm-hmm. slowing down, and I just think what a difference it would make if we were all able to sit with the beauty and the poetry of end of life. And and mm-hmm. saying that, I know there will be listeners who've had experiences, and I've witnessed those too, you know, that aren't always um, as serenely poetic. Um, and I want to acknowledge that as mm-hmm. well. Mm-hmm. But I think just having a person, having companioning, there being this consistency that is what it sounded like. You know, you knew this person, you'd been with her, but Mm -hmm. how beautiful that you were able to companion her with such an open mind and heart and a willingness to be with death. Mm -hmm can't imagine how grateful her family must have been at some level they they were they were very grateful yeah and I was able to take that funeral too which was also very precious 
Beautiful. So, so this is, Margaret hasn't hung a shingle saying I'm a death doula or a celebrant. This is, sounds like primarily death finding you. Uh, Yes. Yes. (laughs) Yeah. Did you ever turn it into a profession of sorts or, or, or all of your experiences? Um, I kind of did. Um, when I was living in England and the work I'd been doing had really dried up and I had no idea what was coming next. And I happened to have a couple of conversations with people about the funerals I'd taken back in New Zealand and how at home I felt. And so these these people both said to me, well, why don't you do that then? Um, so I explored that. It was very, very different in England, um, in New Zealand, where I live. You know, by far the large proportion of, of funerals are taken by civil ce- celebrants. Um, and I had done a celebrant training. And, yeah, so I guess, you know, I was all prepared for it. Um yeah, but I yeah, I introduced something called pink coat funerals, um, which came about in a funny way because I I wasn't used to all the the black, you know. We just, again in New Zealand, it's a bit it tends to be lighter than that, um, and yeah, it kind of I I mean I I advertised that over a couple of years, and I think I had six funerals, most of them in the last few weeks before I left. Um, so I, I can't say it was a wildly um, a wildly good business. <laughs> but but what it did do mm-hmm. is that it sowed the seed, and I was so glad of this, that um, a few years later, three people I, well, two I knew reasonably well and one a little, um, started in the same town, um, a little sort of natural funerals um, well not specifically natural but a, like, like a sort of real sort of like homegrown if you like um, funeral directing and celebrant business and I was saying to one of them how glad I was and he said oh you know it was on the back of what you started and that felt so good um, yeah it felt very good so yeah, and I've done I've done a bit of funeral celebrant work soon. I'm actually seeing someone this afternoon, but that's the first time in probably nearly two years. So it's I just let it come to me now. Um, yeah. And you had been obviously collecting these stories as you went. How long ago did your book come out? And tell us a little bit more about that process. Okay, yes, the book came out last year. Um, I, I wrote the stories um, in, in relation to a, um, a talk I was asked to give where people wanted to know more about how they could support others in their community who were dying. And I was going to sort of give them some information and then I realised that telling the stories um, might be more interesting and they were absolutely on the edge of their seats, these elderly people. And that was what made me realise that this, that the stories could have a wider audience. 
Um, so yeah, that so that sort of process happened over two or three years gradually, and then I um, it was finally published last year, and. Yeah, I think is there something else you asked? No, so that was just the, mm. yeah, yeah. That was basically uh, just curious about yeah that process. So that was a beautiful um, validation when you were seeing those people interested in those stories, and that's a bit of what what our foundation is as well. Or that's not a yes. bit. That's actually what our foundation is built on. Is, is the, the we learn more from hearing those first-person accounts than we do from... Sorry. I'm sorry. It hadn't occurred to me to write a book until I had that experience, and it was like, you know, am am I being almost a bit selfish keeping these stories to myself? Are there more people who would like to read these stories? Um, Yeah, and I'm actually now running a a course through um, adult education um, in Wellington, uh, which which uses the book as a base, and and we look at seven different sort of life themes um, that that relate to yeah things that relate to to death and dying, and we look at them sort of through through the the participants' lives, but also through the you know what can they learn from the stories. So that's just that's happening at the moment. Um, six evenings once a week and I'm loving that it's it's super what um what are the stories behind or the reasons behind most of your attendancy or ten, attendees is there a common theme do you are these death workers or is it people no none of them are death workers um one says she has a fascination in death another one says um she, like, yeah, isn't afraid of death. There were two who said straight out, right, I'm really scared of death. I wake up in the night um, scared of death. Um, and well really, done them for exactly, facing it. Yeah. Yes. Really wide spectrum. Uh, you know, one or two others who have got, you know, elderly parents, so, um, you know, aware that death's coming. Others who kind of look at their life and think, oh, because somehow I've been at the, the transition of three different people. Maybe maybe something's calling me in this. So, yeah, just quite varied, um, but all very open, wonderful people to work with. Yeah. Oh, that sounds delicious. Mm. Wow. Yes. Mm. Now, is there another book or is it just this one? thought. Um, I do. I do have a collection of poems called "When Death Comes Close," which I that was recorded some time earlier. So that's got a CD. I know most people don't have CD players these days, <laughs> um, and it's got a CD and a, and a booklet. Yeah, and I've actually written another book, um, but it's it's slightly off to one side. But it's <clears throat> it's called "Hello Little Death." Um, and that's that's about allowing dying in inverted commas um, to welcoming sorry welcoming dying 
to to allow the fullness of life, to allow a fuller, a fuller life. Um, so that takes a, um, a bundle of ways in which we, like, refuse death and looks at them and then looks at um, how we might sort of integrate them or befriend them. So it's... It's a, it's a kind of general resource, but I, it's also a very useful thing in terms of preparedness for what I call big death. Mm. Mm. And where can people get a hold of these offerings? Uh, through my website, um, <clears throat> which is um, margaretmccallum.com. Shall I spell that? <clears throat> I yeah, that would be. We'll have the in the program notes, but just in case somebody okay. wants to jump off and look now. Okay, so that's um, Margaret, spelled the usual way, M A R G A R E T, and then straight into McCallum, M C C A L L U M dot com, and there's a Beautiful. there's a shop link there, which and then yeah, quite a lot about the books. Hmm. Are they on ebooks as well? They are, yes. Yeah. So our international listeners, because we have a lot of those, would be able to access it, access them in that way. Yes, if, certainly. If not shipping, yes. It's not shipping. Beautiful. Yeah. yeah. So hmm. what does life look for you now and moving forward? Well, I'm noticing some really interesting invitations I would put it so a woman got in touch the other day she'd seen my soul midwife's journal book at the library and was talking to her sister about it who's in England training to be a soul midwife and her sister said where is this woman a New Zealander and this woman says I don't know she looked it up and discovered that she lives walking distance from me so she came to visit because she's feeling drawn towards this kind of work. And there's another, somebody who's doing the course, feeling very strongly drawn. She doesn't quite know what it would look like, but drawn towards <clears throat> somehow working in the community with death, helping people in the community be more aware around what to expect around death, that sort of thing. So just these interesting invitations are coming um, yeah, and a, and a funeral popped up out of sort of nowhere too. So, yeah. Sound like you just have a openness to exploring what's asked of you. To what? Yeah, I do. Yeah, I do. Mm. Mm -hmm. Well, Margaret, thank you so much for being with us. I'm wondering if there's a reading you wouldn't mind Um walking us out with. Oh, <clears throat> certainly. So some of the later stories in my book really highlighted for me how sad I feel when people miss their own death because they're still struggling to live. And this is the poem that came out of that. It's called Your Grandest Parting. Be not so focused on your living 
that you miss your death. It is your grandest parting. Imagine this. You have an invitation from the Queen of Death to dine with her. So bow. Be washed and clean. Resentment will not grace the table of your Queen. In quiet moments, feel the honour of the call of death and bow again. This is a bowful time. Be not so focused on your living that you miss your death. It is your grandest parting. That's beautiful. Thank you so much. Thank you, Becky. Thank you. And with that, we will have our parting. You take good care. Thank you, you too. And thank you for this opportunity. It's my pleasure. Are you in love with story? I'm imagining you are, and that's why you're here. Have you caught our Tiny Stories series, Tiny Death Stories? If you go to our Instagram and Facebook pages, you will find a hundred word or less stories that people are sharing. We're almost to 100 stories right now. If you'd like to submit, you simply write a story about your situation and have it be 100 words or less, send a photo, send how you'd like your name to appear. Some people use their Instagram handles and email it to tinydeathstory at gmail.com. This has been a really rewarding experience for the writers. That's what they tell me. And I've written in flash fiction and flash writing myself. And I understand the processing that has to go on to break these stories down. If you look at your life, it's all a series of stories. So this doesn't diminish the story that you're telling. You can just tell part of it as a tiny story. We look forward to hearing from you. We hope you've enjoyed your time with us today. We'd love for you to get further connected with our project. You can find the links in the podcast information. You can also find the Death Dialogues Project on Facebook, on Instagram, and at www.deathdialogues.net. Take good care and see you next time.